Peter Boyle does a pretty good airplane spin to Gilda, and Gilda hits Boyle with a really good snap mare. Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt, D, and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith, D, and Matt. Saturday Night Live, episode 13, with host Peter Boyle, originally aired on February 14th, 1976. Happy Valentine's Day, D, and happy Valentine's Day, Matt. Get your love ready. Happy Valentine's <laughs> Day, everybody. It's a happy time, and Cupid is shooting people with his arrow. We are actually in the end of June right now, but, uh, you know, it's good to pretend. And much like our Christmas episode with Candace Bergen, somebody may actually be listening to this some year on Valentine's Day. If nobody treats you for Valentine's Day, go out there and get you a bath bomb, like get you a drink. Get you some weed, like mm-hmm. self care. Get a face mask. Do it all. Chocolates, chocolates yeah, are big. Chocolates. Order yeah. a pizza. Uh, one of the pizza shops back home one year made heart shaped pizzas for Valentine's. Oh, yeah. I feel like they. I think they do that every year still. So tonight we're talking Peter Boyle and Al Jarreau. Yeah, Peter Boyle. Recognize Peter Boyle? Certainly recognize him. Uh, I have only seen him in two things, Taxi Driver and Everybody Loves Raymond. I recognize him from Everybody Loves Raymond as well. Well, Peter Boyle is a monk turned actor. (laughs) Don't hear that all the time. May I interject? Uh, I believe I also remember him from, uh, was he in Young Frankenstein? He was Frank. He was the monster. He was Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein. Yes, probably he, his most. He has shrugged at me. Sorry. When you're literally Frankenstein. Probably his most iconic role, I would think, other than Everybody Loves Raymond. I think prior to that, most people knew him from that. And I first saw him in the Dream Team in uh, in the late '80s. Uh, a favorite of mine from that period. I haven't seen the Dream Team in so long. It's one of my father's favorite movies, and he and I have watched it multiple times together. But I was a child, and uh, I am now not, and it's just been too many decades. And I honestly, I remember a little bit about the Dream Team. I don't remember him in it at all. I remember Michael Keaton and Christopher Lloyd. Those are my two standout memory guys from the Dream Team. He was an improv comedian. He was with the Second City. Um, He did some Broadway and some national touring uh, shows. Um, But then he found his niche in the movies as a tough guy, kind of an insane, violent type. Um, He sort of skewed back from that and and, and eventually did things like Young Frankenstein, um, a a very good supporting turn in Taxi Driver. But uh, it was in the uh, late 90s when he really sort of became a household name, I think. For sure. I can see that. I mean, I certainly didn't really know him uh, before TV show. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I didn't even, I still don't really, I didn't really watch Everybody Loves Raymond. So I kind of missed the boat. Um, that one. I, I loved him in Taxi Driver, and I'm going to have to go back and watch The Dream Team. I'm curious to see how he'll do on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I actually grew up, uh, I first saw him in The Dream Team. That's when I first realized who he was. And and I actually grew up thinking he was dead. Yeah, my uncle told me that uh, he had died shortly after The Dream Team, but he actually suffered a serious stroke shortly after The Dream Team and was hospitalized, couldn't speak, couldn't do anything for about six months. For him to come back from that and then have such a uh, tour de force performance on Raymond was nice. And he he was, I mean, I watched a lot of Raymond over the years, and uh, he, he may have been the best character on it. Uh, did he ever win an Emmy? He's the only one of the adult cast that never did. Nominated a lot, but never ever won, unfortunately. And so we also have uh, Al Jarreau, but we'll talk about him when we get to his uh, performance. And we have a special appearance by uh, three young girls called the Shapiro Sisters, and we'll talk about them a little bit later as well. So the show... It starts, it's Valentine's Day, so they start with a St. Valentine's Day massacre sketch. Dan Aykroyd and and Newman, uh, Lorraine Newman, are guests at a Chicago speakeasy. Chevy plays a valet sent to fetch the car, and he gets shot, falls down the stairs. The fall was great. I didn't really care about the joke, like, in general. Like, when they talked about the lab muffler, and then it just ended up him being shot like that. Didn't do it for me, but just the fall was great. And he's so cute at the end of them all. Like, it's so stupid. Yeah, I thought it was okay. It was okay. I, I, it wasn't a home run. The fall was 
very good. I always appreciate a topical cold open, so it being Valentine's Day. I'm glad that was acknowledged in its own unique and interesting way. I thought everybody was good. Like it wasn't there wasn't a lot of jokes there. The, you know, the joke was the fall, so the setup was good. The set was cool, and uh, I thought Lorraine and Dan looked really cool. So yeah, I mean, it was good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was nice for a cold open not to be a political thing, which it has been probably over 50% of the time. So yeah, this was good for me. Not at all in congruence, I guess, with the actual St. Valentine's Day massacre, but whatever, you know. <laughs> It was, yeah. it was goofy and fun. Suspension of disbelief. I, I don't think Dan Aykroyd was in the same Valentine's Day massacre originally either. But I thought Lorraine Newman was really good here. So then we go to the monologue, and Peter Boyle sings My Funny Valentine to his wife Lorraine. Um, as he's singing it, uh, Lorraine slowly makes out, and uh, sort of they get into almost a dry hump there with some man sitting next to her in the audience. I thought this was funny, and I thought Boyle had an, a nice singing voice for that uh, type of song. This monologue serves as a bad omen for me. Uh, yeah, Peter Boyle uh, does indeed have a, a nice, smooth, crooner voice. I was confused because I was just asking the whole time, like, is that an actress? Is this a plant, or is that like are they trying to get a live you know, kick out of somebody in the audience. And then, uh, you know, they started making out. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, Peter Boyle had to do nothing. Uh, I thought this was very bad. One of my least favorites so far. I didn't get it. I I guess I I can't really put it better than that. I didn't get it. Well, when he first came out, I was like, oh, it's him. Because, like, I didn't know him by name. I just watched him and everybody loves Raymond. So that was, like, a fun little moment for me. The beginning of the, the, the interaction with the audience member, I was a bit confused as well. It was silly, and at least it wasn't too long. And two bits of trivia. The woman was Peter Boyle's actual wife, Lorraine. And despite their uh, tumultuous relationship on camera, um, they actually remained married until his passing. The best man at Peter Boyle's wedding was John Lennon. I find that really strange. Gosh, that's strange. That Peter Boyle and John Lennon were tight? Yes. I would have, but that's like the first thing everybody mentioned in his obit years ago, I remember. It was like, actor Peter Boyle passes away... John Lennon was his best man. It was kind of kind of easy. And the other bit of trivia about this little sketch, um, so the man to Lorraine's right, the one that made out with her, was uh, I didn't catch his name, but the random audience member in the big hat that was sitting to her left was Steven Spielberg. Get out of here. <laughs> I was like, yeah. look at that man. I did not yeah. recognize him. Yeah, I looked right at him and I just thought, I wonder if that's a crew member or uh, if it's like just a regular audience member, because he was in a very awkward position if it was just a regular audience member. And then I just happened to see on another site that it was Steven Spielberg. So I went back and watched and and yeah, it was. But for me, it's still Spielberg without the beard is virtually unrecognizable to me. Oh, gosh, I sure didn't know. That's crazy. Yeah, I I guess. I know, you know, in hindsight, I guess I think that's neat. But, you know, I I still got to say that uh, didn't help when I first watched it at all. My feelings remain. So then we jump to the ad for the Corrida. Um, Dan Aykroyd is a Spanish actor advertising a luxurious car that actually sounds to be made quite cheaply with uh, styrofoam and such. Aykroyd was playing a, uh, a Spanish person, and Aykroyd is not Spanish. However... The voice was there. It was very cliche, but I thought Aykroyd did a solid job in something that may or may not air uh, today. Yeah, I didn't really think it was funny, but just like the way he looked was so funny to me. I don't know, just the whole aesthetic um, of just sleazy car salesman was still there, so that was good. This uh, this reminds me of the uh, sleazy car salesman from Futurama. In an early Futurama episode, Amy goes to buy a car, Mm -hmm. and He's, he's uh, that sleazy car salesman, has that accent, and he's like, oh, the seatbelt both lifts and separates. And, you know, he tucks the eyebrow down. Anyway, it's the same character. I For thought sure. Dan Aykroyd was good here, and I enjoyed the sketch. This is Dan Aykroyd's bread and butter for me. What really works for Matt Ryan is Dan Aykroyd doing his sleazy characters. That uh, touches personal notes with me that I really appreciate, that I've tried to emulate at certain times in my own failing comedy endeavors. It, It really worked for me. So now we go to Samurai Divorce Court. 
Peter Boyle plays a judge, and it's the return of Samurai Futaba, played by Belushi, and this time Jane Curtin plays his wife, who has a uh, geisha look to her. It is good to see Jane Curtin doing something else, something bigger. She certainly handled it well, but this is terrible. Uh, it's even worse. I find Curtin's is even worse than uh, than Belushi's. Any benefit of the doubt I had for Belushi with the Samurai Futaba goes out the window with this sketch. Their, their child comes in, played by Jenny Shapiro, one of the Shapiro sisters. And they're about to do a King Solomon split the baby in half thing when they go to a cheesy freeze frame. I thought this was miserable. I didn't like this at all. What the absolute fuck was this? I can't believe Jane Curtin was involved in this. Like, when I saw her doing this, I was just, I was not happy. Like, I don't, uh... I don't expect too much of Belushi. Like, we already know he's going to be doing this kind of thing. But it was surprising to see her in this position. I was unhappy with it. It was hard to sit through. Um, and then when she said, look, Godzilla, like, literally don't. Like, what if you just didn't? Uh, that was the only time I chuckled was when she said Godzilla. I mean, and, and I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to. In Jane Curtin's slight defense, because I do favor her, I mean, she's not a writer. She's just there doing the job acting-wise that she is assigned. I don't put a lot of heat on her. Her name never appears in the writing credits. She's there to do an acting job, and she's picking up the gigs she can. Well, I don't uh, like it. Well, you know what? I don't like it either. I feel the same way as you both about this sketch. I think it was really bad. I did chuckle when she said uh, Godzilla. The other thing I would like to point out is that uh, Peter Boyle does absolutely nothing here. It's like they don't know what to do with him. He's not engaged and the, the writers are certainly not engaged in writing anything for him or, or that might even fit his style. Uh, I said the monologue was a bad omen, and this seems to be the proof of that. Yeah, this could have been anyone. Next up, we have the Shapiro sisters, uh, Helena, Emily, and Jenny. They come out and they dance and lip sync to Natalie Cole's This Will Be. This is random kids doing random things. Uh, the audience absolutely loved it, but this is the sort of shit that goes on in, you know, half the living rooms in the country. The kids were the daughters of Ken Shapiro, who was a director that worked with Chevy Chase at one point. Didn't work for me, but the audience really liked it. This is so, like, stupid and gross and cringy. To me, like, number one, little girls do not belong on Saturday Night Live. Like, late night television, like, on a show that has, like, very adult jokes. Like, I don't like that, and I don't like that they were there. I don't know what their parents were we're doing but i'm questioning the decisions that were made here um yeah i don't feel comfy about it they're literal children and just like from a, a comedic standpoint like it's just not funny like i would rather see like a kid that i know do this at home there's a very important first of all d i agree completely this is fucking creepy they have these girls out here dancing after peter boyle made some kind of like jokes about dating them or something before. This is this is all kinds of wrong. This never makes it to dress rehearsal in a post-Jeffrey Epstein world. This was, ooh, I'm, I'm like doing that thing where you go, ooh, the collar here. This, uh, this was awkward as fuck. I'm just so not pleased with this. Like, I don't know. Oh, I just really don't. I'm so mad. <laughs> In Boyle's defense, and, and I think about that comment, I think what happened there was he started by saying, you know, I'm always looking for new talent. And then he realized how creepy he was sounding. There was a slight micro expression there that made me realize he he's realizing how creepy the intro is and uh, tried to make some levity with a joke that just that didn't fly. To me, that showed a lack of confidence in what he was doing. I don't think he's here for this show. I don't know why Peter Boyle is here at this point. He's not performing. He's like, He's really fucking up this episode, though. Uh, I, I like the guy. He seems like a good guy. But uh, but this isn't working. I think he's uncomfortable about it the same way we are. Why are these children on this late night show? There's no heat on Peter Boyle here at all. None. He didn't book the fucking show. He, he's clearly, and I've said it a couple of times now, he doesn't even really seem that interested or involved based on my early perception of his monologue in these sketches. So... Sure. You know, yeah, I'm sure indeed he was probably just like, what the fuck is going on here? Whatever. Let's just get through this so I can go. Home. Yeah, he has a stellar reputation as just a, a wonderful guy and not creepy at all or anything like that. I think he just it was a mistimed joke. By the way, I think the kids were on there because I think their dad was a friend of Chevy's. I think that's 
plain and simple why they were there. I don't know. That's not good enough for me. Like, it's a whole other issue. It's a your kids don't belong on Saturday night television or in show business. I mean, I agree it's a wretched decision, but I like hearing you say your kids don't belong in show business. They don't. Like, leave. <laughs> Literally leave children alone. Kids like, can be in show business, but they okay. don't have to be, you know, they don't, they don't have to be, be twirling their hips at 1230. On Saturday no. Night Live at like, yeah, 1230 a.m. Like, make it make sense. Mom. Mom's trying to get her bag and I'm over it. <laughs> and I mean, to be fair, again, this is stuff that this is stuff we think of now. A lot of people didn't think of then the CD and side. That's of, the problem. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it goes back. I mean, we you know we can't if we started talking about children in Hollywood, uh, we'd be here all night. It's not a good place for kids in general. We're actually going to have some children who host the show over the years. Now we go to the Acid Trip slideshow. Bob delivers some mountain snow baby powder. The stuff's from Bolivia. He delivers it to his hippie neighbors, Jason and Chloe. Um, They show Bob some slides from their acid trip. My favorite line was Lorraine's, that's me with my hand on the window pane. I could really feel the window's pain. Nice cameo from uh, production designer Akira Yoshimura, who we'll see many, many times and still works for the show. And he makes cameos up till 2017. A little reference to uh, the song MacArthur Park. Chloe proposes a threesome. Aykroyd tells Boyle to keep his eyes out for, for some fudge from nepal bob turns out to be a parole officer and they kick him out um this was funny but not nearly as funny as what it could have been in my opinion i enjoyed it again it's obvious that everybody but peter is carrying this though uh dan and lorraine were fantastic especially dan as per usual uh just his voice the whole character he literally switches how his face looks somehow uh, as he shifts from character to character. I love that so much. Um, my favorite line lines were, uh, we dropped some acid, man. And he was like, oh, it'll turn up someplace. <laughs> <laughs> um, also reminds me, the pictures, uh, the acid trip pictures remind me of Instagram. Tell me that's yep. not what you would see from somebody tripping on acid on Instagram in 2021. It's totally. It's very Instagrammy. And, uh, and yeah, I really, I liked this sketch. I mean, I, I don't, I'm sorry to be that guy, but I mean, you know, we, we we have like thousands of listeners, so obviously a certain percentage is thinking of it. Lorraine Newman is just really hot in this sketch. And it was, mm-hmm. uh, that was really a uh, big draw. She, you know that. Oh, her Betty Boop shirt. Yeah, the Betty Boop shirt. And she was just fucking smoking dan Aykroyd, killing it as always you know he's my favorite you know i think you know he loses himself in everything he's just the guy uh i enjoyed the sketch peter boyle continues to just be an extra in this episode that could have been anybody i thought this was one of peter boyle's better turns i think the issue i'm having is he's doing a very minimalist acting style which just isn't gelling he's not being over the top in any respects which just doesn't seem to be working in this show i think the Um, reason why he works is he's like He's not really a straight man, but he's like this gruff kind of figure to everybody else's absolute ridiculousness. And they didn't put him in that position. Yeah, yeah. And and I was thinking, like, if you did this same sketch with a lot of the other hosts that came before him, um, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, they might not have played it as just your straight up every man, which is kind of giving the spotlight to the, you know, to Aykroyd and Newman. But whether or not that's the host's job or not is is, is a huge debate. But, uh, yeah, he just doesn't seem to have the uh, – maybe the energy is a, is a word I could use there that a lot of the it's others do. It's depressed. Don't tell me he doesn't have the energy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the performance energy. Because he is an energetic actor. I mean, he's, he's, he's very – he can be over the top. Um, but it just doesn't seem like he's bringing that tonight. So we jump to Al Jarreau giving us a Valentine for your ears. And he sings his first hit, We Got By. So Al Jarreau was uh, a, he grew up a big music lover. I think his father was a cor- uh, either a minister or a, a choir director in a church. And Jarreau eventually went in to become a vocal rehabilitation counselor and moonlighted as a musician. His album, We Got By, became a big hit in 1975. And here we are. Uh, I would have to include this in my, uh, in my pantheon of uh, SNL musical performances that I can recognize that are that are done by very talented performers that are just not for me. Al Jarreau's 
a good singer. There's no doubt about it. And that Al Jarreau is a good singer. Of course, he's a good singer. He's Al Jarreau. But that style of music is not mine. This style of song is not mine. And so I, I, I see that. And I think that with that in mind, that I don't think SNL is doing a great job with their musical guests. There is a lot, and I've said this before, there's a lot of cool shit going on. They're in New York City, and you've got Al Jarreau out here singing on stage. And I'm sorry, Al Jarreau in early February 1976. This is not quote-unquote cool. SNL is trying to be a cool show. They're getting it wrong with the music almost all the time. I have not seen cool music yet on this show. I've seen good music, popular music, maybe music that I understand, you know, why other subsets or cultures like, you know, it's not always for me. But, you know, they got to get it together with the music. Spoiler alert, they will get it together. I don't think they're doing it right right now. Al Jarreau's fine, good singer, but this bores me. And it's not, I don't think it's appropriate for, you know, and it's not my business to say music is so subjective. I would argue even more so than comedy. This isn't for me. And I would argue that this is not what the show is trying to represent. They're wrong about the music at this stage in their development. Let me just say, like, SNL either loves a black singer or this is where they are placing black people as, like, a form of tokenism or maybe they're not getting enough, like, black comedians at the time. Maybe there weren't a lot of black comedians um, at the time that were trying to get on TV, which I don't believe. That seems ridiculous. But um, anyway... It seems like they use their music spots to, like, stock up on their count of black people on the show. Um, And I feel like nobody else is going to say that or think that maybe. But it's a little suspicious that, like, the majority of the singers are black. And even if their music, like, doesn't match with the show and it's not, like, a vibe, it doesn't seem to, like, matter. Because he's great. Like, Mm -hmm. I love his voice. He's great. But for Saturday Night Live, like, it's just not making sense for me. I think you just have made such an excellent point. Like, you can put a white singer there. If they're better than the black singer, it's fine. Like, please just don't put black people there for the sake of having a black person there because you've had so many black singers that didn't vibe with the show that it really feels like that. It's funny. I I saw it as the opposite, but I'm glad you pointed it out because it's going to get me thinking now because I I saw it as at that point in time, you know, the the black people in music was front and center more so than music was far more progressive than film or television. Um, uh, But to that point, Keith, I mm -hmm. would argue that this is the height of uh, black exploitation. Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, and I have mentioned, you know, we we I, we have addressed Frank Zappa had a, a his own commentary on it in a very famous song of his, mm-hmm. uh, in which black people are just taken advantage of by the entertainment industry just to show that oh look at how good we are putting them front and center and giving them a payday. And I mm-hmm. totally understand why D is getting these vibes here. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying obviously I don't think necessarily that's true. However, Mm -hmm. having said that, it's very easy to perceive that. And as I've already commented, SNL does a very poor job with the music, considering they are a young hip comedy show. Why are they doing such a curiously poor job with the music and not featuring young hip music? It certainly raises the question. And there is certainly, I mean, I don't see any answer for it. You got young, hip comedy. You got, I mean, I mean, Peter Boyle's out here. He's not exactly a fucking young, hip host, but shit. Without like, do you answers. think people and, like, friends of friends of the show aren't hitting up the show? Like, they've had so many, they've had, not so many, but they've had several people on that were, like, recommendations or people that they found around for the show. And it's just weird that that's not happening with music. Like, you either don't care or you have a greater, like, purpose going on here. Or maybe whoever's in charge of the music, maybe they just don't get it. I mean, because this show at this point, it's an absolute hit. Everybody is watching this show right now, and it's a cool thing to do. So why is the music so far behind? Because it is. And don't let anybody tell you that Al Jarreau is cool in February of 1976. He's not. This is not cool music. This is your parents' music right now. It doesn't fit the show. Something is wrong. 
Are you sure? Are you sure about that? I mean, Al yeah, Garoli. I'm sure. I'm gonna go. No, I'm going ahead and say I'm sure. Dee is putting her hand in my face. Go ahead, Dee. I want somebody to like look up like what was the very popular music like during this Valentine's Day. Why didn't they pick from like the top few people that sang Valentine's Day songs? Because I have a fucking feeling it wasn't him. Maybe I'm wrong. Surprise I, me. I hope he's number fucking two. Well, what I would argue is I think that he was. February, yeah. I think he was. I think he was right at the top of the. I think he was the guy at, at that point in time for for that type of music. Okay. For that type of okay. music, but I mean, I would disagree, D, with even that. I would. I don't think SNL. I, I really continue to think. And you know what? Based on the history I read, S. SNL is trying to, Lauren Michaels, he was like, well, I would never have those old school guys host the show. Then you should, and you know, I get that to a degree, but I also get you have to appeal to the popularity of the hot show of the time. Again, to reiterate, I don't think anybody's doing anything maliciously, but uh, I do think they're getting the music wrong if they're trying to be the edgy, cool show, because, you know, who nobody thinks that they're fucking the, the what's ever number one on the whatever's number one on the charts that's not the cool music of the day that's not <laughs> well, the to your point music of the, day. the number one song on the charts not not i couldn't find february 14th but february 7th was paul simon's 50 ways to leave your lover which yeah i mean we do we can anybody that uh, is interested in my thoughts of paul simon should check out that episode please check <laughs> episode our episode two yeah um two was donna summer love love to love you baby hot chocolate you sexy thing uh barry manilow i write the songs barry manilow is so cute <laughs> um and number 10 neil sadaka breaking up is hard to do the remake the remix we heard last week style icon they should have brought sadaka. it back oh my goodness they should have had trying to see if i mean let me let me let us be clear neil sadaka not cool whatsoever but uh what, what, what a treat for the eyes i'm trying to see if al Jarreau makes this list I, I think he was a little on the sl- the slowdown from that particular album Al Jarreau was not on the top 100 that week. Now, they did do that wacky 1970s red with the white outline camera thing. I thought that was cool. I did too, but at the exact time that happened, somebody's car alarm went off down the street. I couldn't figure out why they were blaring this weird beeping noise over the music. (laughs) (laughs) Because it seemed like one effect, the audio and the visual at the same time, because it was like very like split seconds apart I, I was like what the hell is going on then I looked out and saw someone's car alarm going off so that was just one of them weird timing things that's funny so now we go to weekend update I'm Chevy Chase and you are nothing um <laughs> uh, we'll split it until up till the uh, the break they show uh, artist renditions of the Patty Hearst trial which is a bunch of oddly very appropriate renaissance and Chase does it again plugging his nose as Rhonda Coulet and there's a few jokes about the uh, Olympics and then we get a bit from Garrett Morris in Innsbruck Austria the Olympics ended but Garrett is there there seems to be a glitch I think it might have something to do with the blue screen so yeah Garrett is pissed off that they sent him to some place as cold as Austria and then there's a great bit about Ronald Reagan getting annoyed at TV reporters trash talking him as uh, as Chevy trash talks him so the and you you are nothing like I literally screamed I thought it was so funny like he could have literally spit on me and I would have loved it at that point artist renderings usually I don't find this funny uh, especially because it's so topical and I oft it just goes over my head so often but they could have said anything because the paintings had me deceased yeah, Chevy's Chevy's opening line was uh, was a stitch. I got a real kick out of it. Uh, his tie is really sloppy. He really seems like just the disheveled newsman uh, this episode, which I really I like when he's a little feels a little more chaotic and just like oh, I barely know what I'm doing, rather than when he's really trying to pull off the professional. Uh, I th- this was a little more chaotic newsman. Also, uh, I wanted to talk about Garrett Morris at the Olympics. I loved this. Me too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah um when he finds out like everything about it and he's like well what do you want me to do like i told y'all i want warm weather like i feel you <laughs> yeah he was, yeah uh, he, he wanted to go to angola war-torn angola where it was warm <laughs> it was, it was funny. i love him i want so much more garrett morris like i love him so much really underutilized big time yeah yeah and and underappreciated in hindsight as well mm-hmm 
So then we jump back to the Blaine Hotel. First time we've gone there since episode three. Lorraine Newman, in as her reporter, um, is there to meet a snuff film producer. She says she's due for a meeting and possibly a screen test. This one didn't, uh, this does not age well at all. Uh, Lorraine's reporter I enjoyed this time. Um, I've been a little more uh, positive on it than you guys but uh, this was an awkward piece i uh, i was a little opposite i thought i mean you know me i like the sleazy stuff and uh, you know i like the, the one of my favorite eras one of my favorite vibes is late 70s sleazy new york uh, i'm not and so uh, yeah i mean I, I dug this this was really this is the kind of this is what i was talking about with the music you know this is a good joke there was a movie that came out in 1970 something probably right around this time and it was called snuff and uh, at the end it was and it was kind of like a dreary movie but at the end of the movie there was like this footage which they claimed to be from a real snuff film and they pull all these guts out of somebody who's screaming on the table and of course it's all like really hokey uh, i felt that they were taking that vibe there because I appreciate, like, this just seemed cool. And you know what? I actually do know that Lorraine Newman is a big horror movie person. So she was almost certainly uh, aware of the movie Snuff. So uh, I, I was into her in this. Sure. She's, uh, she's she's doing great for me this episode. And I really liked this bit. I agree. First of all, I have a huge crush on Lorraine Newman. I don't know if I've said it yet, but it's been written down. My, down sorry, in my notes like, <laughs> so many times. Um, so I, think it's, it, I like, think it's been established we all do. Um, as America CIA front, that made me laugh. We have the K-Put stamp gun again which i loved but then we go to emily latella um talking about canker research again it's a misunderstanding of cancer research you know i was really excited for to see emily latella on a semi-regular basis but uh, this is not working for me this there's just too much it, i understand this the same joke played out but it, it, it spread these out a little bit you know you have 24 episodes in a season and we don't have to see it every episode i'm sick of this i was like okay just give me a second if she redeems it with mentioning toast again like if i can make it a thing about toast where she's trying to slip toast into everything okay but she didn't um at least they kept it short this time maybe they're realizing that they can't do it forever so i'm hoping to see the end of it soon it's cash out this is popular. We're going to run with it. They're not writing new jokes for us. It's a little bit more about the, the marijuana testing that Chevy's willing to do. I thought it was funny, the 87 joints a day for the rabbit. Um, oh, yeah, that's what it yeah, yeah. We have gone there with um, making monkey smoke, so I just thought it was like a clever little jab at that. And then the final bit is about a baby bird born at a zoo that was stepped on by a baby hippo that had been born a few days earlier. Um, I enjoyed that one. I think that's an Alan Zweibel joke he used in his stand-up, I think. But uh, I enjoyed that. That was funny. I like that, too. So then we go to All Pro Wrestling. Um, I'm excited to hear how this one works for you, uh, guys. Uh, so we have the Bees versus the Wasps, and it's the Bees, uh, our, our old buddy the Bees, uh, which is Belushi and Peter Boyle this time. And they're against Chevy and Gilda, who are the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant wasps. And Chevy tricks Belushi during a, uh, a lockup. Uh, my only notes are Peter Boyle does a pretty good airplane spin to Gilda, and Gilda hits Boyle with a really good snap mare till the uh, cow drops into the ring during a Pier 6 brawl. Quick, easy. Ackroyd was great as the announcer and the commentator. Garrett Morris had some good chops. It looks like he may have refereed before. But, uh, but this was just a quick use of the B. I was excited when I saw that graphic come up. I'm like, oh, good. You know, I like wrestling. Everybody knows I like wrestling. With, you know, everybody that knows me. But the point is, is uh, when I saw that, you know what I was thinking, Keith, right away? I was thinking that maybe we get Andy Kaufman. I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. I just know that, you know, Andy's involved in wrestling. Andy's involved in Saturday Night Live. So when I see a wrestling graphic, I got my hopes up really high, really quickly. I, it was it was a disappointment for me because I didn't get what I wanted in that regard. Having said that, uh, I continue to think Peter Boyle is completely anonymous in this episode, and that could have been anybody. Chevy Chase was looked great. I, I really thought he he does the dapper thing well. What a surprise that Chevy Chase plays a cocky prick so well and dan Aykroyd, a star as usual <laughs> when garrett removes the antennas from the bee and says they're like a danger <laughs> <laughs> that had me dying um dan just felt like 
you could put him in wrestling like as an announcer and I feel like he could legitimately just like take over that job no fucking problem and I love that um, I'll say it a million times and I'm not going to stop saying it because he deserves it Dan Aykroyd is so good so then we go to Remembrance of Things Past or Remembrances of Things Past where Jane Curtin hosts a mysterious man in an ape mask and it's Dan Aykroyd doing his uh, Richard Nixon impression and it's extra funny to me that he's barely intelligible and he can only make out about half of what he's saying. Nixon's gone all hippie. He's into meditating and he talks about karma and his new surfer friends. I laughed through this whole thing. Uh, I feel like because I wasn't like there for Nixon that I don't really get like I understand that it's supposed to be Nixon but beyond that it's not funny to me um, but what was really funny at the end like when he starts sucking the mask <laughs> I was literally crying he does a really good Nixon I was very impressed with his Nixon wait who was it? Dan Aykroyd okay yeah, we'll see, and we'll see his Nixon again during his run. Next up, not funny, but really liked it, uh, Liberty and Justice for All. Uh, a bunch of uh, African-American children say the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, and then it goes to a quick shot of Garrett Morris in a uh, in makeup to look like Reuben Carter, where he emphasizes liberty and justice for all. And the big that was one of the big stories at that point in time was uh, Carter who had been wrongfully convicted of murder, was uh, getting an appeal. Um, not an appeal, getting a retrial. Of course, all of that's dramatized in the movie The Hurricane, and uh, Carter himself released a book. And, of course, the Bob Dylan song as well was only a few months old at that point. This was political, but it was very well done. I didn't understand this, so it was cool to have it explained. Thank you. So then we go to probably, in my well, in my opinion, Boyle's big hit of the night, um, Dueling Brando's. And it's two versions of Brando's, one Belushi's doing Brando and uh, Peter Boyle's doing Brando to this uh, to the sound of dueling banjos from the movie of Deliverance. Um, both do amazing Brando's. And what's really cool to watch is they're doing Brando in different roles at different stages with the slight affectation that he did in, in those films. So I was really, really, really impressed with this, both of them. This doesn't do it for me, certainly as much as it did for you. I mean, dueling Brandos, dueling banjos, haha, I get it. And then you got two guys who do a pretty good Brando impression. Uh, but I'm not a big Marlon Brando guy. You know, that's just, it's not my thing. Uh, so I didn't really, I was, I'm not interested in the subject matter particularly. You know, I can definitely see why this was Peter Boyle's highlight of the night. Because, I mean, he's done nothing else. I enjoyed this. Obviously, because of my age, I'm not, like, super into Brando or anything. So it wasn't that. It was impersonations of him that was funny to me. Um, it was just funny, like, seeing these two guys doing their thing up there together. Belushi, like, in an extremely, extremely exaggerated version. And then Peter in, like, a less exaggerated version. I just thought it was cool. Like, I thought it was cute. But I also could, like, see this if I was hanging out, like, at a local bar and two guys were chilling, you know? And then uh, the next sketch uh, I thought was an enjoyable bit. Uh, I called it Appliance Repairman. Um, Jane Curtin is uh, running around on her husband, um, and he comes home early from work, and the husband's played by Peter Boyle, and he finds various men hiding throughout the house. Um, John Belushi as janitor in a fridge. <laughs> Aykroyd, doorman in a closet. Uh, Chevy is uh, in his uh, with his pants down around his knees as a uh, uh, mailman and the maid. Actually, Gilda was there as their maid. And then Garrett is milkman in the bedroom, and they all have these really good uh, sort of advertising pitches. And then Lorraine Newman comes in as lady from the house next door, and Peter Boyle follows her out. I thought this was probably the best sketch of the night. I didn't mind it. I, I thought it was really long. And uh, that that was really the sinker for me. And I guess there's, you know, I'm sure there would be a uh, in a writer's room. They would say, well, Matthew, you know, we got to, you know, there has to be a joke. And then, you know, the jokes have to build to the ultimate, you know, conclusion of Lorraine. And I, I would say, well, I guess I see that argument. But uh, then if, if that's the case, then I would argue in that writer's room, then the jokes have to be funnier because we can't just keep making the same joke in here, in here, and in here. Uh, so we've, we've made the same joke three times, all for this like ultimate payoff of the Lorraine joke at the end. That's a lot of work for very little payoff. 
other than getting to look at Lorraine Newman, which I always appreciate. Uh, it was too long for me, and it wasn't inventive enough. It wasn't, I don't know, I didn't really think there was anything there. Like, I get it. Like, Jane's like, oh, I'm cheating on my husband, and it just, yeah, this was a thumbs down for me. Didn't enjoy it. It was long, but I laughed, like, up until the very end, um, where, like, they all go into the other room and, like, laugh at him together. I wasn't entirely, like, getting the joke, apparently. Um, I thought this was going to be, like, another infomercial, um, like, commercial kind of vibe. So I was actually, like, confused by the end when I was like, oh, like, that's not what the joke was. And it just made me feel stupid. Well, no, it, it it did lead that way. It was it was sort of it had I think that might have been the point too because it was sort of had me on. I wasn't sure up until the end. Is are these actual products you can buy? I'm kind of with you on that one. And then when yeah, they all booted into the bedroom. I wish they had went that way. Like I wish it was an actual um, commercial like or infomercial like they had done many times before. At this point, um, it would have been funnier that way next up's the home movie um and this is introduced by gilda and it's a home movie by howard grunwald it's a series of long credits and then it cuts to basically a shot of a home i thought this was really friggin clever and i i loved it yeah i thought it was pretty good i mean i got a good chuckle out of it yeah i thought it was clever i liked it i laughed at this independent home movie harder and in retrospect more than i did at any of the albert brooks stuff oh yeah and then immediately after the movie, uh, Garrett Morris brings Gilda a valentine. Um, Gilda said she didn't bring Garrett one because she didn't want him to get the wrong idea. Garrett assures her that they can have a perfectly platonic relationship, and in his valentine he wrote a poem for her that he sees as a platonic poem. And it's very lewd, and it talks about some rather filthy things he'd like to do to his good friend Gilda. Considering the context, I thought this was hilarious. I thought it was kind of funny because you can see Gilda's reaction like immediately um, that you can tell that she thinks it's funny. She doesn't think it's like gross or anything. This is the right way to like do a molestation joke when the other person is in on it. And it's not like literally like creepy, like I'm going to molest you. Mm. Um, It's just it was just funny. Like I could picture giving that Valentine's to like one of my close friends and like laughing about it. Like it wasn't that serious. I think they really sold it as, as the sketch ended, they sort of hugged and gave one another a kiss on the cheek and it, it, they showed you're, you're making a great point. They showed, Hey, we're, we're friends. This is just a joke. Everyone relax, you know? Yeah. It was like cute. I liked it. So then we go to Al Jarreau, um and he sings the song. Somebody is watching you. Uh, this continues the trend of the second show, second song, not being as good as the first one. This may have been a good choice for Valentine's day. And this one, Jerome makes a lot, like, he makes a lot of noises that are sort of like half scat, half instrument noises, uh, and I'm not sure if I like that. Again, this is another one like the police's every breath you take, where depending on the relationship between the people, the lyrics could be very, very, very stalkery. Didn't work for me as well as the first one did, at least. Number one, like, again, they just keep putting, like, the same musical talent throughout the episode they don't even like give us a second person anymore they said fuck it like we asked one guy let's just vibe with it i don't know if it's cheaper for them or what but i don't like it this one was like way more niche feeling than the first one i feel like you would have to be a fan of him to appreciate this because i didn't snl historically is one musical guest with two performances uh, that's that's the formula that they will settle on. Uh, so and, and maybe they have done so already. I don't know. I haven't seen all these old episodes, but I mean that is the formula. So having two musical guests is actually uh, what is exceptionally odd to me in looking back. This is uh, this is boring music from a talented singer. Yes, Sal Jarreau is very talented. I'm sure there are very talented chemists. And I'm also not interested in their work. So now we go to, oh, for fuck's sake, repurposing of that lovely Christmas video we had made by Gary Weiss at the airport. So if you're a lonely person and you didn't take a cyanide pill after seeing the last one at Christmas, uh, here's your opportunity to do it at Valentine's Day. Did this thing work better for you guys at all? No, it was even more depressing this time because you know anybody that's watched the show knows when they've seen it last. So it was like a definite like double insult. Like if you haven't found a partner by then, like fuck you, I guess. This is Saturday night, Valentine's Day weekend. 
Anybody, anybody who's watching Saturday Night Live at this time is having a rough go, okay? You're not on your date. You're not smooching. You're not partying. You're watching television late at night. And this is what you see. Do you think this is what people want to see? Tone deaf, horrible decision-making, putting this on. I can tell, D that you're chomping to say something. So just go ahead. Just like between this and the literal children they've given me in this episode, like it's fucking Valentine's Day. Like, <laughs> what are you trying to do here? Like, what is the message? Then we go to the goodbyes. Peter Boyle introduces his friend Patty Hearst, who is played by adult film actress Jennifer Jordan. And she just stands up with her hands in handcuffs and waves. Then we go to the uh, huge group goodbye. And it looks like it's the whole cast, the host, the musical guests, the Shapiro sisters. And this is the first real Saturday Night Live end of the episode goodbye. Um, so Peter Boyle comes back in a couple of decades time um, and Al Jarreau also comes back the Shapiro sisters don't come back and according to the IMDB it doesn't look like they really ever appear in anything else again um, I was going to look into it a bit more I like to sort of you know say where people are but I kind of got thinking with these you know these three women uh, providing if they're still alive I assume so this might you know they probably went on to do other things and this five minute deal on SNL just might not be something they really remember or care to talk about so maybe it is i don't know what i do know is their father completely retreated from hollywood out of disgust for the studio system so maybe the kids went with him al Jarreau, where are you guys sitting no i don't like it it's like a five out of ten because i recognize that he has talent but he doesn't belong here four out of ten uh capable singer uninteresting songs out of place inappropriate yeah for me i thought maybe he'd get a point for being a half decent choice for valentine's i'm also coming to accept the fact that a lot of the early songs or a lot of the music on these early episodes is, is stuff that i might not voluntarily play but would certainly never shut off if it was come on if it come on yeah Jerome was obviously talented and good but this is not something that would make me say well let me uh let me get more um let's talk peter boyle who uh-huh. The host, he might as well not have been there. That could have been anybody. You know, I hope he had a good time. He seems like a good fella, and he's very talented. I don't blame him, per se. Was he not interested in the writing process, where the writer's like, what the fuck do we do with this guy? Uh, Let's just write our shit and just plug him into it. Uh, However it happened, whether it was him, whether it was the writing staff, uh, he was an absolute non-event as host for me. Uh, I don't have any feelings about Peter Boyle because he didn't give me anything. Like, he's a blank slate. Like, he could have been anybody. Pop me in there, buddy. Um, nothing memorable. And I think the, the the big point for me in this one was halfway through Weekend Update, I forgot who was hosting that week. But he didn't do anything terrible either. It was just kind of he was there. So what's the worst part for you guys? For me, it's uh, it's absolutely uh, Samurai Futaba. I concur. Samurai Divorce Court was absolutely the low point of the show. I agree with that. The less said about that one, the better, I think. The best of the night. My favorite was um, Dan Aykroyd and Lorraine Newman in the apartment, her meditating, him waiting for drugs, Peter Boyle getting the mail. Uh, that, That one worked the best for me. Yeah, it was between that one and the two randos, which is interesting, I guess, because I don't give a shit about Peter. But it's the one point in the night, like, where I felt like he was vibing like enjoying himself being there so i liked that so what's your pick that's my pick you pick the two randos yeah Fuck. it, it gives cool. me host engagement um it gives me a belushi impression and we all know i have a crush on belushi so my best was ape mask nixon um i laughed from beginning to end um i just i i don't know if i i, I tricked myself into thinking it was actually richard nixon in the ape mask <laughs> The way he was sucking it in, like <laughs> that was really um, the impression was bang on. And just, uh, I mean, I've read a lot about Nixon and just the thought of him hanging with a bunch of hippies and doing, you know, karma stuff and, 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 and meditating and stuff is just, it just hit on really well for me. And Curtin's fantastic in that host role as well. So who was our uh, star of the night? What works for me tonight is Dan Aykroyd. I think this show was carried by the not ready for primetime players because the host and the musical guest uh, were 
fucking two huge misses. I mean, Peter Boyle, I'm not saying he couldn't be bothered. He did fine in Brando, but, I mean, nobody gave a shit that he was there. Al Jarreau showed up and did his thing completely out of place. Dan Aykroyd, and he was the only thing I enjoyed about the wrestling sketch that was otherwise a disappointment for me. Uh, he was amazing in the uh, drug sketch, and, you know, he he was good in everything. He, he's just, he's a treat to watch, and he was just consistently funny. God, I got to asterisk Lorraine Newman, because, I mean, quite frankly, whenever she was on, couldn't stop looking at her. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, like Dan Aykroyd, but also, like, Lorraine Newman, I fucking see you. Yeah, I was also, I, I was a firm Aykroyd. I didn't think he had any competition on this one. Lorraine was good. Gilda had a few good spots, but this was all Aykroyd, and this actually may have been Aykroyd's best episode to date, I think, just showing his extreme versatility. He absolutely carried this episode. And our overall with our grade. So for me, first, uh, Peter Boyle was passable. Al Jarreau was passable. The Shapiro sisters, like I said, were nothing you couldn't see in, in a living room. Um, and I've made my points about Samurai Futaba. Uh, very terrible, boring ending, ending for the bees. No Muppets again, which is interesting. Uh, and Gary Weiss's worst work is uh, showcased again. The whole show was timed wrong. Uh, timing and delivery was off. There may have been some tech glitches. Peter Boyle was not a tour de force to cover up for that. They were coming back from a two-week break, and I was kind of hoping that that would have given them some some energy and some new material, but it doesn't seem that way. For a season that's seen to be sort of the gold standard of Saturday Night Live, these last few episodes are, are very disappointing, and just the whole show seemed a little sloppy to me, to be honest. Um, I gave it a five. Yeah, I agree. Like, they probably gave me, like, a four out of ten, but I'm feeling, like, spicy today. I'm feeling a little bit, like, generous today, so I'm gonna give it a five out of ten, um, because Dan Aykroyd, he picked it up. I give this show a four out of ten. I think it was carried exclusively by the not ready for primetime players. And I think in the instances where they could have carried the show further, uh, well, there was just, there were some instances where they were just not given the opportunity. There was not enough of them, but nor should there have to be four out of 10, too many misfires, a lot of weird, that Shapiro sister's stuff was weird. Peter Boyle just might as well, he could have just phoned it in. He did phone it in. That could have been anybody. Uh, the writers maybe phoned it in is uh, might be the more appropriate thing to say. Saturday Night Live has absolutely no idea what they're doing with their musical guests. So, yeah, five from D, five from me, and a four from Matt. Um, that averages it out of 4.6. IMDb gives it a 6.9, which is way higher than us. I don't know what they're seeing that we weren't. Um, and based on the IMDb rankings, this is the 17th best episode from season one so thank you very much matt and d it was so nice to talk about this rather bland episode with you guys uh, certainly our conversation i think made it uh, far more interesting oh thank you for having us and happy valentine's day to all our yes. listeners and uh, because i know while we may not record this on valentine's day if anybody is anything like me you know, you you look out at Christmas. I, I I listen to a bunch of Christmas stuff. I watch a bunch of Christmas stuff. On Easter, I watch a bunch of Easter stuff. I listen to a bunch of Easter stuff. And on Valentine's Day, I listen to a bunch of Valentine's Day stuff. So to all those out there listening to this specifically because it's Valentine's Day, I love you. Feel free to reach out. Get on that self-care, honey. <laughs> and our next episode will come out in about a week's time, if you're listening to this in real time. And it's hosted by a true television legend. Um, like Legend with a capital L. It's uh, Desi Arnaz. So until then, Dee and Matt will be checking out Lorraine Newman while I suck in an ape mask here in S and Hell. <laughs>